When I was a child, I was warned against making silly faces under the threat that if the wind changed while my face was in that silly position, it would be stuck like that forever. I'm generally curious how wide this was. I'm, I'm sure it's an Australian thing. I don't know if it goes much beyond that. I reckon there was an episode of Around the Twist. Please uh, shout out us out on Twitter or comment below if you're on YouTube and let us know uh, if you ever heard this too. Regardless of how widespread it was, this folk warning carries with it a sense that the winds blowing is out of our control. And it's spontaneous and surprising and holds within its movement some surprising capacity. Perhaps someone looking for a really niche uh, PhD topic can chart the long trajectory backwards from this childhood threat to Jesus' teaching that the spirit blows where it will. I promise if you do that, I will interview you on this podcast. Uh, but that's not the, t the concern of today's guest. Rather, today's guest has concerned himself with the Missio Spiritus. Combing through the entirety of the Bible for references to the wind, breath, and spirit of God and what they might reveal about the mission of the triune God and from that, the church's mission in this late modern post-colonial time. This is Love, Rinse, Repeat. My name is Liam Miller and my guest today is Amos Young. Dean of the School of Theology and School of Intercultural Studies and Professor of Theology and Mission at Fuller Theological Seminary. Some of his books include Spirit of Love, A Trinitarian Theology of Grace, The Bible, Disability and the Church, In the Days of Caesar, Pentecostalism and Political Theology, Hospitality and the Other, Theology and Down Syndrome, Discerning the Spirits, A Pentecostal Charismatic Contribution to Christian Theology of Religions, and a book that I love, uh, particularly Renewing Christian Theology, Systematics for a, for a Global Christianity with Jonathan A. Anderson. Today, we are discussing his new book, Mission After Pentecost, The Witness of the Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, out now through Baker Academic. I encourage you to pick it up. In this book, he writes, the message of Pentecost is about the arrival of the spirit into a world of particularities, differences, and others of other tongues, languages, cultures, peoples, and nations, of male, female, young, old, slave-free, and so on. From this perspective, the missiological course suggested is one that opens up to and engages others. Please welcome Amos Young to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, Amos Young, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. It is great to have you with us today. Glad to be here. So we're going to be talking today predominantly about your book, Mission After Pentecost, uh, with Baker Academic. It's coming out, it's out now, if you're listening to this, which is very exciting. But you, people who might have followed your work, you've written on just a wide range of topics, um, systematic theology, mission, uh, theology of religions, theology and disability, um, you know, hospitality, political theology, you, you kind of run a real wide gamut here. Um, what, what is it that, it, I guess, inspires you and uh, excites you and keeps you going, not only to write a lot, but on quite a wide range of topics? Well, thank you for the question. I think that the, there's actually a, a pretty um, substantive thread through most of my work, which is I come from a Pentecostal background, and um, basically came into the Theological Academy around 20 years ago at a time in which 
Pentecostals were just barely beginning to develop their own voice in a number of areas theologically. And so from that perspective, um, most, if not almost all of my work has been motivated by, if you will, energized by sort of just the ongoing curiosity and question about, well, what would a Pentecostal perspective on this topic be? Whatever the topic was that I was happened to be um, curious about. And obviously over the last 20 years, the nature of that question has, or the the way, you know, the meaning of Pentecostal, for instance, across those 20 years has shifted. And when we do come and talk about this book, I can elaborate on that a bit more in detail. But the, again, the, the silver lining throughout all of my work so the last 20 years has basically been asking, if you will, the Pentecostal question or a range of questions motivated by my own growing up in Pentecostal churches, um, continuing to minister in Pentecostal charismatic churches environments. I continue to retain credentials of the Assemblies of God. Uh, so the, the disparateness of all of the topics actually are held together by a common, a common thread. Mm, that's really helpful. Thank you. I guess just to stay in that world for a second, uh, if you if you have thought about like you know approaching all these different topics, is there a kind of potentially an umbrella or overarching thing that that you think uh, Christians outside of the Pentecostal traditional movement might gain from the fact that Pentecostal scholars such as yourself are are, are tackling these? What is it that if there's a, an overarching or underlying uh, thing that kind of is brought to it that uh, is maybe neglected if if it is not approached if they you know before this uh, scholarly movement kind of began. Wonderful, thank you. You're setting me up nicely. And uh, well, you know, there is a there is a somewhat surprisingly easy answer to that, which is that one of the ways in which I have answered the question over the last twenty years is really to downplay that Pentecostal motivation meaning that my Pentecostal motivation came from growing up within a specific kind of church, being credentialed as a minister within the Assemblies of God, for instance. But as a theologian, I've come to realize that the questions I've been asking, while generated from that site, if you will, or that, that, that range of experiences, actually opens up bigger questions for all Christians. And so from that perspective, I've always part of my answer to all of these questions that I've asked, what's a Pentecostal perspective, has always then opened up to, well, here's a Christian perspective on this topic, in part informed by my being a Pentecostal and therefore approaching the, the question from that perspective, but that approach really has opened up to a lot more than just, if you will, what might be of interest only to Pentecostal churches and those who Pentecostal, those who self-identify as Pentecostals. And that's in part because, and now I'm going to answer your question, I do think that uh, my, my theological journey has, has led, if you will, from Pentecostalism to the work of the Holy Spirit to the day of Pentecost. And so let me just unpack that for a couple of moments. Um, that my Pentecostal background and spirituality and experience that has emphasized the work of the Spirit has therefore, in that respect, invited me to answer a lot of these theological questions from the perspective of what is the Holy Spirit doing? What is the Holy Spirit saying? Who is the Holy Spirit? And how might looking at this particular theological question from the perspective of the Spirit 
shed some new light, potentially, theologically, on the topic. So you could say that much of my work over the last 20 years, while generated and starting from a Pentecostal perspective, has opened up to what I would then call a pneumatological perspective or a pneumatic perspective or a charismatic perspective, a, a perspective that is therefore not reducible to the Pentecostal movement, but certainly springs from there. And from that perspective, I would say that the work of the Spirit is really something that all Christians either ought to be interested in or is relevant for all Christians, not just for those in Pentecostal churches. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the one, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, that's what Christ means, anointed by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Jesus Christ follower, if you're a Christian, that means that you are one who is a disciple of the anointed one and therefore also anointed by the same spirit that anointed Jesus, um, you ought to be interested in the work of the Spirit. You ought to be asking about, well, what, is, what about the Holy Spirit in this case? Or what does a pneumatological perspective um, open up on this question theologically, whether it's theology of religions, whether it's theology and disability, whether it's theology and science, political theology? I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, and I think that's, one of, that's been one of the things also that's motivated my work is that this Pentecostal perspective that, I had developed during my graduate school days has really opened up to uh, what I would call also now uh, third article theology or uh, theology of the spirit, right? Um, and and many other theologians that are not just from Pentecostal backgrounds now are also writing about third article theology or the, theologies of the spirit that are not necessarily Pentecostal in the sense of the churches of my upbringing. They're not Foursquare, not Church of God in Christ, not uh, the Assemblies of God, but they are pneumatological. They concern the work of the Spirit uh, in the world historically and today uh, in the complexities of the world that we've lived in. And so from that perspective, let me then just um, sort of follow that out just a tad more. This um, opening up in my Pentecostal journey to the work of the Spirit theologically has in that respect led me back to the day of Pentecost narrative as central to the New Testament and as central to the Christian life. Yes, the word Pentecostal in the modern day reference that, that identifies a group of churches comes from Acts chapter 2. But, you know, Acts chapter 2 existed long before the Azusa Street revival. Acts chapter 2 existed long before Pentecostal churches of the modern era emerged. Um, Acts chapter 2 has been a part of all of Christian history, church history. In fact, one might argue that um, without Acts chapter 2, there would be no church, if you will. Um, no spirit poured out that baptizes people into Jesus Christ, that forms his body. Um, and arguably, according to the New Testament witness, it is Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost event, that initiates, if you will, the body of Christ, the fellowship the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So from that perspective, all Christians, whether they ever acknowledge the work of the Spirit or not, can only be Christians and followers of Jesus through the work of the Spirit that baptizes them into the body of Christ and enables their confession of who Jesus is. So from that perspective, the Pentecost narrative opens up to the rest of the New Testament. And there's a sense in which everyone who is a Jesus follower and a Christ follower is a Pentecost 
follower or one who has been baptized by the spirit of Pentecost, even if they never use the word Pentecostal to describe themselves, or even if, if the day of Pentecost narrative itself plays a very minor or even no role at all in their own theological self-understanding. So Pentecost becomes a doorway then into which I would understand the Christian life. And therefore, my own theological, if you will, exploration has um, been propelled by, well, what if we kept walking through that door every time we had a theological question? What might revisiting the theological conversation or the theological discussion in this, that, or any other case look like if we reapproached it from that Pentecost perspective? And that's been a fairly generative posture to have in, my, in the last two 20 years that I've been doing my work in the sense that, you know, um, historically, one would argue, there have been lots of approaches about that have um, began with the first article, God is creator. And arguably, arguably, Reformation theologies are second article theologies. They revolve around the redemptive work of Christ, Jesus Christ. And so um, we, we can argue, for instance, that Karl Barth and his uh, church dogmatics is a magisterial um, second article theology all the way through, based upon the word made flesh and uh, the word of God revealed in, in, in history and now through the scriptures. And so, and, and of course, that, that Christological sort of center opens up for Barth into a brilliant, in a brilliant uh, iteration of, uh, if you will, a Barthian Trinitarian theology. And all that's wonderful and great, and there's still many more books to be written from that perspective. But my point in going down that road is simply to say that uh, when have you heard of any attempts sustained over any course of time of approaching questions pneumatologically? Well, the answer to that is probably very little or not at all. Uh, in fact, just even to ask the pneumatological question has been has raised furried eyebrows and caused um, uh, wondering of other sorts in many cases, right? The work of the Spirit adds a lot of passion to our, our and enthusiasm to our work for mission, but does it prompt much theological reflection? Hmm, maybe not. Um, but I think that's exactly my point, is that the work of the Spirit can be a springboard for theological um, dialogue, for theological inquiry, and that thread has been what's uh, motivated much of my own theological work. Thank you for that. And that's, that really lays some great groundwork for you know, where this book comes from, which is looking at the Bible and miss missiology, um, but particularly through looking for the divine breath, the divine spirit and the missio spiritus. So we'll turn to the book then. You write, and it was good that you were speaking of the day of Pentecost because you write in the introduction, the message of Pentecost is about the arrival of the spirit into a world of particularities, differences and others of other tongues, languages, cultures, peoples, and nations, of male, female, young, old, slave-free, and so on. From this perspective, the missiological course suggested is one that opens us up to, opens us up to and engages others. And later you note that this others includes individual others, as in peoples of other cultures and faiths, and structural and systemic others, as in nations, people groups, and socioeconomic Reality. So let's let's shift into how your you know pneumatological uh, you know grounding and and door opening takes us to uh, your work on mission, this Pentecostally informed approach to mission uh, and its importance, particularly in the context of late modernity and the 
and the lingering post-colonial suspicion or, or interrogation of mission. So how does that groundwork that we've start to, that we've established start to move into this specific question of mission as in opening up to others? Well, you've uh, asked a big question from uh, one sentence in my book. Um, I don't know that I can uh, step right into that. I suppose I'd say a couple of things, maybe as a, by way of preliminary thoughts to begin to respond to that. I mean, obviously, let me just put it this way. Um, one, of course, has to read the entire book to mm. get and, and really, you know, sort of respond to the, the question that you raised from out of that sentence. Um, a couple of things I guess I would say would be mission, the word mission itself, uh, while in some respects based upon some New Testament texts about being sent, um, that word in the 21st century has now had a few hundred years of colonial history behind it that make it a very, very convoluted and contested idea. So one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to step back from some of that history. I mean, fully recognize that in the 21st century, to, do, to, to participate in God's mission means that we have to deal with that with that history and that baggage and, and all of the complications. But how do we do that? So I think part of my response is, well, maybe what we should do is to go back and see how mission, if you will, um, unfolds across the, the Bible itself. Or mission then in what respect? If we can't just take our last 200 years worth of understanding about mission and then read the Bible and say, okay, we see, we see what we do now back there as well. No, that's probably a little bit reversed. Um, so I was led then to say, okay, if we were, we were going to look and ask what is God's, if you will, missionary heart and work in the pages of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, what is one way to ask that question? And if the book of Acts tells us that God's mission finds its penultimate, if you will, sort of launch in the day of Pentecost and what then the divine wind does in and through and out of that event, then is there a way then for us to follow the, if you will, the, the, the threads or the indicators of what the divine wind and breath do throughout the Bible to try to get perhaps a renewed understanding of God's heart for the world? So that's where a lot of the book is wagered on, right? That if we can identify where this divine wind or breath blows in both the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, maybe we can come to, if you will, a, an understanding of God's mission heart that is behind what it's become in the last few hundred years. So that's, that's one area. I think the second sort of motivation for that would then be to say that when I did then look at the Day of Pentecost narrative, and when I did look at the ways in which the divine wind and breath show up across both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I also began to see that um, how one of the emphases of the modern missionary movement, which was to follow out, if you will, what I would call um, Great Commission missiology, Matthew 28, right, um, making disciples of all nations. And while that's certainly part of the missionary mandate, that from a late modern perspective became a very individualized call. 
the call, the missionary call was to lead people to uh, discipleship in a individualized manner, a one-by-one manner. And again, it's not that that's not part of it, but in some mission circles, that is in effect what mission has become reduced to. And so one of the things that I think my work has helped us to see again is that, yes, that is an important part of what it means to bear witness, individually, interpersonally, in relationship with other people, individuals. But yet at the same time, as the day of Pentecost narrative itself very clearly opens up to, and then as we then see how across both the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the movement of the divine wind or the divine breath is not just upon individuals, but upon people and upon situations and in and through systems. Then we can be invited to reconfigure what this mission in the 21st century or Christian witness in the third millennium. Uh, how do we go back beyond, how, we, how do we go get beyond the colonial enterprise? Well, I would invite us to, to say by simply retrieving and re-inhabiting the scriptural narratives about the work of the Spirit um, that lead us, yes, into individual encounters, into individual interactions, but also into engagements with people groups, with nations and structures and systems. And so that's at least why found in my own grappling with, if you will, the witness of the scriptures to the work of the divine breath, which has helped me then to then in that respect recalibrate uh, potentially a contemporary missiology. That's really helpful. Thank you. And I think it's important that uh, that lays out that when people are maybe thinking about getting this book, which they really should do, um, is it's not just like a, um, well, let's go and look for how people did mission uh, in the Bible and, and then extrapolate strategies for mission now. Or it's not just, let's go look for the commands to do mission and, and um, put that on us. You know, it's it's what's the song that we're humming along to, um, that the rhythm of the spirit kind of unfolds with the movement of the spirit throughout um, both Old and New Testament. So I think that's that's really great. Um, can, I, can I just add, can I add a, little, yeah. a little comment, a little footnote to that? I think that you've, you know, hopefully identified that. And now this is even coming back to much of my own ecclesial tradition, the Pentecostal movement, the modern Pentecostal movement. You know, we have been very, very motivated to mission work. Um, and so that's a plus that I would say. The minus, if you will, is that the modern Pentecostal movement that emerged from the Azusa Street Revival in the early 20th century, from that perspective, has also brought along with it much of the baggage of the colonial missionary endeavor. And so you could say that um, along with all of our missionary fervor is in part some of the Achilles heel of the, of the colonial enterprise, right? That that's, that, that's both our strength and, and therefore our weakness in that regard. Um, and I think one of the things, again, that the Pentecostal movement has done a lot to... Um, has really brought back to attention for the modern church, uh, the contemporary church, is that the spirit is not just, you know, this silent, shy, hidden um, member of the of the triune God that's sort of in on the back burner, but is vital and animating in the church today, in the world today, and at work in the world today. So, that's certainly been a very important 
part of what the Pentecostal churches have brought back to the fore in the last hundred years. I do think, however, that while that is very important, I think one of the next phases of our thinking about the work of the Spirit, now in the 21st century, you could say the second century of the modern Pentecostal movement, is that, okay, yes, the Pentecostal movement has reminded us that the Spirit continues to work, but now we can begin to appreciate the, the deeper layers and the depths at which the Spirit works. Yes, the Spirit is, uh, accomplishes and achieves personal transformation. And yes, the Spirit um, works in human hearts to uh, deliver, to save, to empower, to enable. All that happens in our individual lives, yes. But one of the things that we have lacked language for in the Pentecostal movement and even in the modern church is how do we talk about God's activity in among nations, among peoples, among systems, among um, uh, groups, and so on. And I think part of what Mission After Pentecost invites us to attend to now and then potentially develop new language for is the Spirit works both at this individual level, but also in, at the depth level, or also at the systemic level, or also at the structural level, or also at the transpersonal, transnational, transsystemic, the economic, the political levels of the world and we need to develop better theological language for all of that and i think that one of the things that my book does try to do and again i think it's because it's the first step it's still very halting in many respects is yes as we can continue to observe the divine wind blowing through these realities as we continue to see and observe and talk about the divine breath being being um, bestowed upon these relationships, these structures, these nations, these systems, that then will give us a renewed imagination for being able to observe and then participate in, if you will, the salvific, missional, redemptive work of God, um, bearing appropriate witness, yes, at an personal level, but also as we engage with systemic, structural, uh, and corporate, if you will, realities of our time. So that's something that um, I think that my growing up Pentecostal didn't quite prepare me for, but it's been trying to follow out the work of the Spirit that I've seen in the Scriptures that's now invited me to take another look and to, um, therefore, in that respect, potentially be better prepared to engage as someone participating in the mission of God in these spheres. Mm. That's really great. And I think that leads well into um, a question I had for later, but we'll move it up. Um, that um, when I read uh, some years ago now, your um, renewing Christian theology, your systematic, um, I really loved your chapter on divine healing and your, and your commentary on the Gerasene demoniac. Um, it, was, it was a commentary I employed a bunch in our, when I was a university chaplain in our groups. So I was very excited. Thank you. <laughs> so I was very excited when uh, you get to your section on Mark and you, and you return to that story. Uh, and you, you write this, um, if the world's forces of darkness seek to keep human creatures in chains, they are expelled by the good news of the reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. If the present life is constituted by enemies within, spiritual, and without, sociopolitical, that keeps us antagonistic with others, then the inbreaking of the divine rule by the power of the anointed Messiah saves us from such demons, heals our estrangement, and reconciles us to others. And I think this is beginning to touch on or, or drawing out more of what you were just talking about. And so I was curious to think about what, what 
does it mean, I guess, for the church to participate in, in the mission of the Spirit uh, when that mission is this one of deliverance, both kind of cosmic and at an individual level and then kind of socio-political and particularly at a group level? Um, I'm thinking potentially, like, you know, as this, as we think further how this might shift our approaches to to doctrines or to our approaches to thinking even how we think of sin and sanctification uh, in the sense of the way the mission of God uh, sweeps over that and, and, and affects that in these, in these times when we're much more aware of structural and systemic sin and thus the need for structural and systemic potentially sanctification. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, boy, you don't ask very easy ones, do you? Um, can I just say amen and be done with it? No, I guess Great. that won't really work. <laughs> um, so... I think that part of why I've been writing along these lines, and thank you again for now calling attention to this prior book, um, which again, I think, as I've started out by saying earlier, this this thread of the work of the Spirit is fa fairly consistent through almost everything I've written over the last 20 years. And so from that perspective, each each book in that respect builds on, on the earlier work of my thinking about the work of the Spirit. Um, on, on these fronts, I would say that the Pentecostal and evangelical side of my church background does a great job thinking about the work of the Spirit in deliverance, in personal transformation, personal sanctification, personal redemption, in our in our and 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 what's really amazing and powerful about that is that it does accentuate that the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, male, female, young and old, sons and daughters. Every single individual potentially can receive that Spirit, can be touched by that divine wind and breath, can be transformed. And for God so loved every single person that um, he makes his breath available to be blown upon and to carry each one of us in our particularity, in our uniqueness, in our specific DNA with our specific fingerprints that no one else has, right? I mean, that's, that's the level of God's investment in each one of us and in every single hair of our head, right? And, and that's the level of God's attentiveness to the details of the creation that he has now allowed to evolve and the Pentecostal evangelical side of me is very strong in emphasizing deliverance and salvation and sanctification in these very very concrete terms of me and you as singular individuals on the other side I also think that there has now emerged in the last hundred plus years, traditions, the social gospel beginning 100 years ago, liberation theologies, a number of other um, theological traditions, maybe not ecclesial traditions, but theological traditions that have helped us to see the systemic side of reality and how the narrative of scripture doesn't neglect that and shows that God is interested as much in nations as God is with individuals. God is interested as much in groups like 
Israel and the poor as God is interested in you as a capitalist uh, individual, etc. Right. That, but those two worlds, those two theological worlds, seem sometimes so far apart. And the evangelical Pentecostal side of me speaks one language, and this these theological traditions speak something completely different. And one of the things I think my work has tried to do by attending to the work of the Spirit, which also from some perspective, some would say that modernity relegated the work of the Spirit to the... Um, uh, the non-material side of reality, maybe the after-you-die side of reality, the Spirit's work is to save your soul so that you can go and be with Jesus after you pass from this earth. So modernity has relegated the work of the Spirit to that, if you will, uh, non-material realm. Yet, at the same time, I think one of the things that I've seen as I've looked at what Scripture testifies about the work of God's wind and breath is that God's wind and breath are always on material realities, bodies, nations, peoples, systems. And so that work of the Spirit ends up now cutting across or uh, bridging this chasm that modernity has constructed, that different theological traditions have presumed um, a binary between and no dialogue between. And so I think that one of the surprising things that I've noticed and observed, and now that has come through in this case, is how, no, the work of the Spirit can't be relegated to only the non-material or can't be relegated to only the structural, but actually somehow involves both. And so we want to really pay attention to what is God doing in the world today? We have to answer that question in some respects in both domains, but precisely because we're answering that question in both domains, we're seeing that they are actually part of one reality and not two separate worlds. So I say all that to say from that from this perspective, excuse me, that the day of Pentecost is the perfect example of this, right? That um, the sound of the mighty rushing wind blows through this upper room and the tongues of fire are seen to alight on each head, and each individual speaks um, in another language, if you will. But this, other, this, this speaking in other languages is not just a speaking to themselves or to God, but is now a communicative uh, mode through which the wondrous works of God are declared to all the nations of the world. Those from every nation under heaven gathered on the streets of Jerusalem, and on the day of Pentecost, which is consistent with the way in which Luke talks about the story of Jesus as one that unfolds in the days of Caesar, in the days of Augustus Caesar, in the days of Tiberius Caesar, in the days of Herod, meaning that for Luke, the Jesus story is not just about an individual, but it's about, it's about history, it's about the Roman Empire, and it's about what God is doing in that world that imperial world, that global, local world of the first century. So, and, and again, the whole account of Luke is not just what God is doing, but what God is doing in Jesus Christ by his spirit, because again, Jesus says at the beginning of Luke, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel. So you, you could argue, therefore, that, that Luke presents a pneumatological perspective on God's redemptive work that 
has imperial ramifications or is situated within the flow of imperial Rome of the first of the first of the first century. And so from all of those perspectives, I think scripture itself invites us to ask those kinds of structural, systemic, political, corporate questions um, that um, you know, those in my church are perhaps haven't been given the permission to perhaps haven't been given the theological and biblical resources to really ask for or engage with. But as I've gone back to scripture myself, both previously and now in this book, and, and your reference to uh, my reading of the Gerizim demoniac was a case in point, but now also in mission after Pentecost, again, it's observing what is God, the spirit doing in the world to bring about God's redemptive work. And how can we therefore be inspired to imagine a new and afresh how we can participate in that redemptive work. <clears throat> Excellent, thank you. And uh, that also, like you know, we won't go into it now. That foreshadows um, the section on Luke, which is uh, also great in the way it looks at like the jubilee mandate that churches were living out, and uh, the Spirit's commitment to embodied human flourishing. Uh, and it also uh, was an Easter egg, I guess you could say for folks who know um, that reference in the days of Caesar to another excellent book of yours about Pentecostalism and um, political theology, which people could check out if they've uh, read this one. Uh, so um, what did one uh, kind of final question and then a little game to end? Uh, we'll go back, we'll jump back to the prophets, your section on the prophets. At the end of your commentary on the book of the 12, you make an important observation that Israel's um, centripetal and centrifugal witness are interwoven. The Missio Dei involves as much attention to how Israel lives together as a people of God as going out to evangelize the world. Uh, I think this is an important, uh, you know, insight that, you know, the, the internal orderings, the internal attention to justice and right relationship is part of our mission as much as it is part of, you know, not just, um, you know, off to the side from mission and mission is something, a second order activity. Um, do you see this view as something that like the, the, Old Testament holds together as a kind of majority view or is it something that's kind of developing later with these prophets? And then do you think it it differs or shifts as we get to the New Testament or is this something that kind of the, you, you would say, carries over as an important um, holding together? I would like to think that uh, there's more continuity than less continuity as we shift from the first to the second Testament. And I think one of the things that um, would lead me to say that actually would be that from my understanding of how scholarship on the Old Testament has uh, gone over the last hundred years or so, although the Old Testament describes, if you will, a history that stretches out over potentially um, a millennium, meaning let's say from 1400 before Christian era to about 400 before Christian era. I know that that is arguable from a number of perspectives, but let's just put that there for a second. So although it could purportedly be said that the Old Testament describes this history spanning about one, one, one millennium, yet the writings themselves have come to the final form in which they are in. The majority of the Old Testament comes from uh, during and after the Babylonian exile. Not 100% of the Old Testament, but much of the Old Testament, right? So even if it concerns histories long before that, the 
the the the writing, the collection, the editing, the pulling together, and the coming together of what we now call the Old Testament uh, really is an exilic and post-exilic phenomenon. Meaning what? Well, meaning that the Old Testament emerges from out of a time and a history of movement. That the Old Testament emerges from out of a time and a history of displacement. The Old Testament emerges from out of a time and a history in which the people of God, the Jews, are asking questions about who God is and what God is doing in their world, meaning in their exilic world, in their post-exilic world, in their questions about migration and exile and being refugees and uh, being engaging politically and economically with global powers. Well, if that's what the majority of the Old Testament represents, meaning questions generated by and attempts to answer questions from those movements, then that seems to me to be, in many respects, what the New Testament is about as well. Meaning, it's written by people who found themselves on the move, written by people who found their, um, particularly if, you, if we say that, that much of the New Testament itself comes after 70 a Christian era, which is the fall of Jerusalem, that there is a a dispersion of Messianists, Jewish believers, um, that Christianity finds itself in this space that's asking, what does it mean to be part of the people of God that at one point been understood predominantly as a Jewish reality, but now seems to be opening up to many directions? And so from that perspective, I would say that there seems to be more continuity than less between the Old and the New Testaments, and therefore invite us to, to understand how uh, both of these Testaments can be read as mirrors on each of the other with regard to how the people of God and the witness of God and the mission of God is constituted by, if you will, perpetual sojourning on the one hand, but yet on the other hand, what does it mean to find rest amidst all of this movement? And, and how do we understand uh, place and rest amidst all of this unpredictability, all of this um, dynamic um, uh, movement that we're a part of? So I would say that's in part how we could read both what you refer to the centrifugal and centripetal dimensions of, of bearing witness is because those movements respond to the question of God's people. On the one hand, always on the go. On the other hand, asking questions about home and asking questions about stability and asking questions about identity amidst all of that interaction. Thank you for that and, um, and for all your, your thoughtful responses today. I, I hope it's given people just a bit of a taste of the book, but it really is truly just a taste. I mean, the book does go Genesis to Revelation. We haven't, asked, we haven't talked at all about Paul or your work on, on the Johannine literature, on the Torah or the history. Like there was so much more that we could have covered, but people can hear how you cover it if they go and pick up the book uh, Mission After Pentecost, uh, The Witness of the Spirit from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, out through Baker Academic now. As we close, just I have a real quick game that I play with guests, which is called pairings, uh, as if you're in a restaurant, pairings. Um, and basically I need you to pair your book with a meal. So if people are going to read your book uh, over a nice lunch or a dinner, what's a meal that's going to pair well with it? Uh, they also need a, a piece of music, 
a song or an album or something like that, and then another book. What what other once they've read Mission After Pentecost, what's another book that uh, pairs well with it? Hmm. Wow. Um, the meal. I would almost want to say something like, "Can you stomach?" Um, a multicultural sort of um, feast, you know, uh, starting maybe with some the first the first appetizer being more of a Western notion, a main course that is from somewhere else, and then a a dessert that's from a third place. I'm not sure that. That's a good way to describe what the meal is, but that would give us a taste, I think, of um, how I found working my way through the Bible with regard to the work of the Spirit in all of the many, many different places and contexts within which we find the Spirit. So, um, what was the second one again? Uh, a piece of music, a song. A piece of music, wow. Um, the song of Asian believers. That was I can't remember the name of that song exactly, but it's it's one of the lines in the song. We were singing it at a church yesterday. Um, you know, music arising from the African plain. It, it it talked about the global people of God, constituted by many nations, tongues, and tribes. Um, if you can find it after you get off this, you can put it back in here for us, but I can't remember what the name, name of that song is, but it was a wonderful worship song. We sang it yesterday at church and um, another book. Wow. Let's see here. I mean, the other book of mine called the missiological spirit comes to mind, but I wasn't sure about being self-promoting in this regard. <laughs> I'll um, we'll have that one on the side and then, so that's there. And, and then, yes. And then we get you throw in another one from, um, Hmm. I would read the book by Michael Stroop, The End of Mission. Great. Which would be a good companion to this one. Yeah. Well, excellent. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug or promote at this time? Uh, you know, obviously the book most of all, and people not only getting it, but then rate and review so that the word gets out. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, draw people's attention to? I think that's, that's, that's good enough. Great. Thank you, Liam. No worries. Thank you so much for this today. Right. I really appreciated the conversation.